Hi, my name's Sam Breakgear and welcome to Brains Bite Back. This is your podcast for technology, psychology and everything to do with our society. Following on from last week's topic of biohacking presented by Mags Tanov, I'll be interviewing an engineer turned founder who previously worked at SpaceX and Hyperloop before creating Levels, a startup that focuses on metabolic fitness tracking technology, Josh Clemente. In this episode, you'll learn how Levels works, why tracking glucose levels is so important, and how tracking metabolic fitness can change your lifestyle. And for our good news feature, we have a story about members of the cybersecurity community uniting during the outbreak of the coronavirus. This episode is brought to you by Publicize. Publicize is a digital PR company that stands out from other legacy agencies. They don't charge large retainers or simply send out press releases when you have something to announce. Instead, they have a transparent and modular approach to PR that ensures you only pay for what you need. They refer to this approach as growth communications for everyone, and it makes them the default option for tech startups looking to take their first steps in PR. If you want more information, you can request a free PR assessment at publicize.co and find a tailored PR strategy that works for you. And exclusively for BrainSpike Back listeners, for a limited time only, those who sign up for a 12-month package will receive one month free. To claim this promotion, visit publicize.co slash BBB. Disclosure, this episode includes a client of an Espacio portfolio company. Personally, I'm someone that's quite sociable, so I love to be in the office and I love to have that energy around me. So sure. it's a bit weird to be home and recording a podcast. Yeah, we're uh, we're actually a remote team, so I'm I'm in my normal work environment right now. Nice. So you you always work there then? You're always remote? For the most part. I mean, we, we do a lot of uh, co-location, so we'll plan events in advance and spend a week working together. But yeah, typically I'm, I'm remote and the rest of the team are distributed. Nice. Where are you right now? I'm in Philadelphia. And how has the virus affected Philadelphia or like, how has it affected your day-to-day life? We are on uh, full lockdown, basically only critical requirements. You can't leave except to go to the grocery store and things like this. And yeah, it's very quiet, but we haven't been hit to the same extent that New York has. So even though we're about 90 minutes away from yeah. New York City, it's um, it's a much lower case volume right now. So yeah, That's good. lucky in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, here we're on the exact same thing. I saw, I think I saw on the BBC today that like a quarter of the world is on lockdown, which is wow. incredible to think. <laughs> so many people. It's fascinating. I mean, this whole thing is a is a, a historical case study. We're gonna we're gonna learn yeah. a lot of lessons from what's going on right now. Yeah, definitely. On to a more positive note when it comes to health. Uh, would you be able to tell our listeners who you are and what you do? That would be lovely. For sure. Yeah. So my name is Josh Clementi. I am the founder and president of Levels Health, and my background is aerospace engineering. I have since taken my love for building things and refocused it on the problems plaguing our society as it relates to metabolic health. Awesome. That's very concise. I like it. (laughs) So then when it comes to metabolic health that you spoke about, uh, would you be able to tell us about Levels and your work in that and what it is and basically give us a rundown on how it works? Absolutely. Yeah. So... The Levels program uh, essentially connects people with their own biological information in real time. So we enable uh, people to access bio-wearables. Think of continuous glucose monitors, for example, which when combined with the Levels analytics and insights software that we're building, these devices can close the loop between our daily decisions, so the actions that we take every single day, 
in our body's metabolic responses or reactions to those decisions. And this happens in real time. And so our focus is on generating this concept of metabolic awareness. And this is the experience of perceiving and understanding the relationship between our decisions and our body's responses to those decisions. From there, once you have that metabolic awareness sort of sparked, the Levels platform can help guide you toward what we call metabolic fitness, which is this concept of optimal metabolic health, which it certainly doesn't happen without focus and repetition. And so we can help with a steady stream of insights to grapple uh, with, with data and make better decisions each day from your dietary selections, your meal timing, stress management, exercise, workout times, all of these little micro optimizations that you can make based on your own personal data. Cool. You said um, it measures like the actions that you take. How granular is that? Is that in the case of like you sitting down for half an hour or like what are what are these actions? Would you be able to give some examples? So right now we focus on the the larger scale decisions. So your meals, your meals, the content of them, your workouts, the, the timing of them, your stress, the specific stressful experiences you may have. So uh, very stressful meetings, the build uh, in cortisol and the, that happens throughout the day can affect your glucose levels in a really negative way so that we so we try to focus on getting you into a meditative zone to bring your stresses down uh, your sleep schedule so these are the like the kind of the large scale decisions you're making ultimately we will be able to uh, pull in much smaller granular detail but the low-hanging fruit no pun intended is these big decisions we make each day without context, without data driving them. So when I think of this sort of industry, it's not something that I'm too aware of. It's something that I'm definitely interested in. And I think within the next year or so, it's something that I might explore a little bit more. But when I first think of this, the first thing that kind of comes to mind is like Fitbit technology. How does it relate to compared to something more mainstream that someone might know? How does levels compare in that sense? It's a it's a good comparison, I think. Uh, so so Fitbit, for example, and Garmin and, and the Apple Watch, these all take uh, what I would call superficial variables, and it, they provide metrics for them. So let's say heart rate, let's say cadence or or step count. These are the types of things that your Fitbit will measure. And what's interesting about those is that I can measure them myself. You know, I can count my own steps. In fact, my, my phone kind of has an accelerometer built in that will count steps. I can count my pulse with my finger. These are, are very superficial surface level metrics. And you can do a lot with them. There's no doubt about it. But what Levels does is we bring biological information. So the, the devices that we are using, the data streams we're using, like glucose, are um, clinically relevant. They are some of the most important molecules in the human body and they are upstream of a lot of detriments and positive optimizations that we can make so glucose for example is the primary energy molecule in the body and so what we're measuring has in my opinion much more relevance in in both short-term optimization and long-term risk than your standard wearable okay if i could ask how did you get into this like what made you think this is what i'm going to focus on my time on was it something that you had an issue with or did you see other people having an issue and you thought, I'm going to solve this? Yeah, it's actually a personal experience. So my own discovery of metabolic awareness and uncovering some underlying metabolic dysfunction in myself using a continuous glucose monitor is actually what, what led to this. I can give a little backstory on that. Yeah. So I worked at SpaceX for about six years and towards the last few years, I was leading the pressurized life support systems development there. And so this is like the mechanisms and equipment that will keep astronauts alive in orbit. And throughout this program, I was exposed to some really compelling research on some of the benefits of higher fat ketogenic diets for extreme missions for divers and astronauts. And, and there are these amazing physiologic protective benefits 
that are kind of shocking to realize that they are entirely driven by diet. So this is the first time that I was exposed to the protective components of diet or really the, the effects of diet in general. I was up until that point, and I've been a CrossFit instructor for many years, up until that point, I sort of considered physical fitness to be synonymous with health. And so being exposed to this research started to get me thinking, you know, what's going on in my own metabolic system, the dietary decisions I'm making, lifestyle decisions I'm making are based on truthfully emotion or the internet or like something I read someone else doing. It's not based on me. This coupled with the fact that like, you know, I'm getting up there in age and I'm starting to notice some, some decreases in energy levels, fatigue setting in every day, kind of just generally feeling this lethargic sensation and lower mood throughout the day. And so I decided it's time for some experimentation. It's time for me to get more data about myself and how I'm functioning. And so having a, a decent understanding of what the human metabolism is, what the metabolic system is, and, and just as a quick explainer, you can uh -huh. think of metabolism as the set of cellular mechanisms that produce energy from our food in our environment, right? So this is like the way that your body takes the available fuel from our food in our environment and generates power to run processes in the human body. So I knew, I knew a bit about that. I knew that glucose is one of the primary molecules in metabolism. I figured, well, I'm having energy issues and glucose is very related to health. So I should start measuring glucose. And uh, after a, a very complex process of being denied from various uh, health organizations, I was asking to get my hands on one of these devices. I eventually did get one. And I found out that I was actually spending a large percentage of each day in the pre-diabetic blood sugar range. And this was completely essentially asymptomatic. While, while my glucose was very elevated, I had no idea, but it was the crashes coming back down from these elevated moments that led to this extreme sense of fatigue for me and really was causing these, these fatigue cycles that I was experiencing. So uh, seeing that I was in this pre-diabetic zone, this is uh, certainly not what I was expecting. I, I anticipated that I would be in excellent metabolic condition and this would lead nowhere. And instead I found this like very surprising and scary data. And so that led to about uh, several hundred hours of personal research, which eventually crystallized into a realization that this is a, an endemic problem. This is very widespread. Uh, mm -hmm. Pre-diabetes and diabetes in the U.S. alone affects over 100 million people. And uh, this data stream could be totally transformative if it was leveraged more effectively. And that was, that was kind of the, the light bulb moment, you know, the realization that this could really bring control and, and a, a sense of taking back management of our, our wellness and our long-term health. You talked about like, uh, obviously the cycles of crashing of energy. How has that been for you since? Have you managed to like get on top of that or like nail it on the head? Absolutely. So my, my glucose levels now are, you know, it still takes quite a bit of focus. I have to really string together a strong set of, of uh, sort of what I call rituals to keep my glucose levels in the optimal range that we've developed at levels. But generally speaking, my energy levels are far more consistent. And I think that's the most important thing is I have developed an intuition for how to live my, my life daily so that caffeine can be an indulgence rather than a requirement. For example, I don't have superhuman energy. I'm not trying to say that this is a you know, sort of this magic pill where I feel like I'm on adrenaline all the time, but I really have very, very consistent energy levels throughout the day. And although I may not have the highest highs, I certainly do not have the lowest lows. And it's uh, equipped me to be able to make a better routine part of my life. And it's not, it's, it's far less of a struggle than before because I have the data, you know, I'm making decisions based on 
information rather than on guessing and trial and error. I can totally understand because like one piece of advice, which has always stuck with me is that you can't manage what you don't measure. And I've definitely found that to be true in so many areas of my life. Absolutely. And what you said really resonated me when you used to think of like physical fitness was health because I'm kind of coming out of the, the dark in that sense now. And that's why I say I'm interested in just learning more about this subject. But the one thing which I find quite intimidating is the fact that <laughs> the more you explore this topic, the more you realize you don't <laughs> don't know as much as you thought. And every time I listen to like a podcast with like some nutritionist, I just cannot keep up. And then there's other mm. things and there's all this and they're talking about grenin and glucose level. And I'm just like, <laughs> what is going on? I thought it was like, as long as I get my five fruit a day, mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm good. I eat enough protein, eat enough like carbs. It's all good. But I didn't realize that there's so many other like granular levels. And I find it quite scary, but I suppose exactly like you said, if you take your time, if you understand it, hopefully we don't have to go through the 700 hours that you spent <laughs> to, uh, to, right, yeah. to the research. You've done all the hard work for us. It's, yeah. it's a really good point, though, and, and I do want to kind of dive in there and just say sure. that that's ultimately why levels exist. There is, you know, it needs to be the case that data can be used to make better decisions without it being onerous. It shouldn't be that you need, you know, a degree in physiology or metabolism to understand what to eat for lunch. You know, to, you know what I mean? So that's what levels is here to do is to provide those actionable insights. We'll analyze the data and develop metrics that you can track without this huge cognitive load. And going back to the the science that we talked about behind it or the research that you did i understand on your website it says that levels program is backed by rigorous scientific evidence what type of scientific testing was used to support levels yeah that's a great question so the technology at the high level that levels uses is the same technology that was developed originally to monitor glucose levels for the management of diabetes so these are the continuous glucose monitors that bring out the data that we then uh, interpret in the levels program. So the by the way, diabetes, for those who, who aren't super familiar, it's a condition where control of glucose and insulin has been lost within the body, either due to like chronic lifestyle factors in the case of type two diabetes or an autoimmune condition in the case of type one. And so the evidence that we reference is hundreds of thousands of hours of glucose data that's been published by clinical groups around the world and the evidence is, is kind of, we can bucket it into two main groups. The first is the relevance of glucose at all. So why do we care about glucose at all? Well, this has been studied. It's probably one of the primary focuses of the metabolic research that's been done thus far. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, glucose is the primary molecule. It's the primary energy molecule in the modern human. And because every process in the body requires energy, the availability of glucose in the blood dictates how the body allocates resources and to what, right? So you, uh, your body kind of takes stock of what's available in terms of energy, glucose levels drive that. And then based on those levels of availability, it will allocate resources to let's say weight gain or hormonal releases, all of the different things that we experience. And so uh, this has been studied to the nth degree for over a hundred years. And when glucose gets out of control in one direction or the other, there are very large scale effects on the hormonal processes we experience. Like I said, weight gain, fatigue, mood disorders, fertility issues, cardiovascular function, and of course, diabetes. The research cor correlations are super strong and every major scientific institution recognizes glucose as a key biomarker for health and illness. And then the second kind of bucket of research that we reference heavily is mm -hmm. the, it's much newer. And this is um, the individuality of glucose responses. So uh, there was a landmark paper published 
in the Cell Journal by the Weizmann Institute. This was in 2015. And this research showed that using continuous glucose monitors, you can see a, a profound personalization in the blood glucose responses of different individuals to the same dietary decisions. So I'll give you an example. This trial showed that two participants who each consume a banana and a cookie made from wheat grain at separate times, these two individuals will actually experience an equal and opposite response to these two foods. So uh, this is not, you know, this is not, this is the case that the, everyone in the trial ate these foods and they can find individuals who had completely opposite responses. So it's not even that the, the magnitude of the response was different, it's that it was, it, they moved in different directions. And these results have since been replicated in the glucotypes trial at Stanford and in the PREDICT trials at King's College in London. And uh, those PREDICT trials actually went further and showed that only a minority of this personalization element, so this individual variability, can be attributed to genetics. And it's in, in fact, identical twins sharing 100% of their DNA can have the same degree of glucose variability to the same foods. So those are the two, the two main groups of, of research that we uh, reference heavily. And all of this is, you know, we, we publish a lot of stuff on our blog, which which links out to the specific studies on the dysfunctions associated with glucose and on the personalization elements. But really what it all shows, all this research in combination, is it shows that there's no one-size-fits-all diet that can be sort of prescribed from a distance. You know, if the decisions we're making are inducing negative metabolic responses, we not only are working against our personal goals, but it also can be putting us at long-term avoidable health risk. And so the level's thesis is that, you know, knowledge is power, data should be personal, and people should be making better lifestyle decisions based on the data that underlies their metabolic function, and the research really reinforces that. Mm, it makes sense. My co-host, Mags, she previously interviewed um, a biohacker or someone that works in biohacking. And that was one of the things that really rung clear for me is that like everyone is so individual and unique. And that hardly comes as a surprise. You can see that in the way people are made up physically and how they act. And then also the easiest association for me is physical fitness. Not everyone can do the exact same physical fitness plan and get the same results. And you're going to have to do different things. So it makes sense that you have to tailor your lifestyle in a certain way that fits you. But it's good to know that uh, Levels are digesting all this research because it sounds complicated. <laughs> so it's good that they're, uh, you guys are working on it and then just getting this uh, little patch. It's a little patch, right? It looks quite sleek and stylish from uh, yeah. the image I saw. And you just stick it on there and then good to go. Um, yeah, so exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a you have a hardware component, you do wear the patch uh, for two weeks at a time, and that connects wirelessly to your phone. And then the data is interpreted and analyzed, uh, fits into our metabolic models in the le levels program and outcome insights and, and in go lifestyle decisions. So you log your, your actions, and we analyze all that in the context of CDM data and then show you kind of the low hanging fruit for how to make better decisions. And if anyone listening wants to get their hands on one of these, what's the process? Like where can they go to? Uh, when can they get it? And um, yeah, where in the world could they yeah. get it delivered? That's a great question. So continuous glucose monitors are out there. They're, they are available primarily for, like I said, the management of diabetes. Uh, Levels is of course in enabling access on a much wider scale for general wellness. Right now, we are still heavily in development. So we're, we're working on our analytics platform. We have a beta program ongoing with a few slots per month, essentially. And, and we're using that very tight loop of feedback to help guide our, our development process. We expect to be publicly available 
later this year, sort of to be de determined. We don't quite have a launch schedule uh, nailed down right, right now, but if people sign up on our website, you can follow along uh, on our newsletter and we will have you know some big updates on our, our formal launch date towards the end of this year. Cool. Out of interest, do you consider yourself a biohacker? I'm glad you asked that question. So that's, uh, that's something a lot of people do wonder. And I personally do not identify as a biohacker. I don't obsess over, over data. I don't sort of run crazy experiments on myself. What I do think is that it is high time for data to drive decision-making for our general wellness decisions. And that that needs to be a mainstream decision, not a fringe or niche decision. So uh, like society is, I think, ready for many reasons for uh, better wellness decisions. We have to sort of roll back the metabolic epidemics that we're dealing with. And in order to do that, we have to, we have to sort of start to accept that data is going to be an intrinsic part of that. And it's not necessarily biohacking to care about how you, you are responding personally to the decisions you're making each day. In fact, it's just generally good procedure to have some data underlying your choices. So yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see how we use data in every other important part of our lives, except for lifestyle planning. And, you know, once it becomes sort of wellness or lifestyle planning, there's this biohacker label, and I know some people take it to the extreme, but, you know, I want to bring all of that into the mainstream and away from the label. You know, the label is very, it's very fringy feeling for me. I don't know how you yeah. feel about it. Definitely. I think it feels more like a buzzword than anything. And also it's mm -hmm. one of those things which I actually didn't really know what biohacking was until I got into it. Like when I first heard biohacking, I thought, is it someone that maybe just like implants a chip in their skin and suddenly right. they can... I don't know, talk to a computer. I mean, not yeah. really that, but you get what I mean. <laughs> and I think that's what most people think. You know, they, they hear yeah. biohacker and they think it's some sort of, you know, crazy cyborg thing. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it. So it's like synonymous in my head as like cyborg. But without using the term then, how do you think that data-driven decision-making will impact our health and well-being over the next 10 years? What what do you think we can expect to see? Um, so there, there are so many positive, uh, you know, improvements to, to the way society functions that I think will, will come about in 10 years, 10 years is a long time. And if you just look at the, the pace of progress in the last 10 years across society, you know, technology has filtered in and in some cases infiltrated basically every corner of our lives. And there's a, there's one major exception and that is how we make decisions every single day. And so like, if you compare the difference, for example, between how we treat our finances and how we treat our daily lifestyle decisions. In our phones, in our pockets, we have all of our financial data available. We have our account balances, transfers, income, expenditure. Like we can share this data with experts who can help us plan, show models of your trajectory well into the financial future for your retirement and all that. But if I were to ask, you know, what data do you have? What actions are you taking to give you confidence that you'll be around to enjoy that retirement? I, I would wonder what people would respond. We don't have data that's driving the wellness choices we're making. It's like not having access to your bank account balance, yet being told not to overdraw. This is kind of how I look at the way we treat our chronic lifestyle choices right now. And it's important for people to realize that it doesn't have to be this way. You know, you're making these miniature decisions each day. Every little, every little choice you make right now is sort of in a vacuum because we don't have data driving it. But these, although they don't have like an acute negative response, you don't feel an acute negativity. You don't, you don't suffer like immediate health consequences from them. We can sort of kick the can down the road for, for years and years. And then ultimately, you know, someday we just get this diagnosis or we find ourselves feeling horrible and overweight. 
And it doesn't have to be that way if instead we just have this sort of compass of technology that can just help us make better choices in real time. You know, I, I want to sit down, I want to eat a lunch. What do I eat? This is where technology can help us is without being onerous, without being big brother, like it can just say, this is how your body responds to these foods, select from this group rather than that. And let's get to work. You know, it's, it's that degree of simplicity and elegance that I think will be just mainstream in, in not, not 10 years, actually much sooner than that. That's one of the main, the main directions. And, and, and then of course there will be additional biomarkers and additional genetic. I really think that the, so far we haven't hit the prime for genetic information. So being able to further filter the set of choices that we are going to make based on our genetic code, that's going to be a really big one. And we haven't quite gotten there yet. We're sort of just scraping the surface of what our DNA can tell us, but I think that's another big vector that, that will be coming mainstream soon. I'm really looking forward to it. I hope you're right. I hope it is sooner than 10 years. Because uh, I do feel that like when you have data or a better understanding of like what you're consuming, it does, it does change your perception of things. The only thing I will say is that it's become increasingly clear that intermittent fasting is pretty good for, well, it's supposedly the only thing to, I suppose, extend life expectancy. Mm-hmm. However... I liked food too much. So I think I'm good. I'd prefer like I'd be able to live my whole life eating whatever. <laughs> I'm quite fortunate. I got those genetics and I, I do I love fitness. So I'm like, mm-hmm. I'll keep eating what I want knowing that, all right, maybe I won't get that retirement, but it does make you think it really does. Like when you, when you have an understanding of, oh, I can choose this or this, I can choose to mm-hmm. act this way or do that. And I can actually see like almost like a projection of how my body is going to be or, or how long I might live as a timeline. Yeah, you know, it's there's something really interesting about the concept of metabolic awareness I was talking about, where you know, a lot of people, and you know, I kind of sense a little bit of this from you maybe, and I, t- I totally understand it, but there's this fear that having the data will be strictly negative. It will only show you what things you can't do anymore. And it's actually not that way. It's really surprising for many people to find out that, oh, this thing that I thought was going to be really bad for me really actually treats me quite nicely. You know, for me, some of the examples would be like cheesecake and ice cream. Uh, mm-hmm. These are actually very balanced macronutrient meals, if you want to call them that. I, I don't recommend eating them every day. But in terms of your glycemic response to something delicious and and rewarding like ice cream, uh, my blood sugar is, responds very, very positively, actually. And compared to a, a different dessert that I may not even like as much, but I might choose because I think uh, it's got a much higher content of fruit or something like this that that should make it healthier. Well, reality is that by seeing the glycemic response, I see that I can actually go with the ice cream and I'm, I'm optimizing for this biomarker that is really valuable. And it's actually kind of a positive reinforcement. And yes, there are those, those sort of negative reinforcements. You might feel like, oh, I should probably avoid uh, this food. I, I've, I've sensed that it's not great for me. I don't feel super well. And then you see the data and it reinforces that intuition. That's also, in my opinion, a positive reinforcement. So just like going from having no context and sort of guessing and feeling a little bit uncertain to standing on a framework or a foundation of metabolic information is really powerful for people. And it doesn't feel like a discipline, uh, in, in my opinion, and many of the people who have used the levels program, it, it really does feel like a, like a win, like a light bulb moment. You know, I now have, I now have rationale for the first time for the choices I'm making and I, and confidence. Yeah. Uh, I think there'll be many curveballs. Like if I was to, to get into this and I'm okay with that, cause obviously the whole process of life is unlearning and learning again and, mm-hmm. and such. And also, like you said, I think it's good to have because there's nothing worse than feeling like crap and not knowing why you don't feel why you don't feel so good. Mm-hmm. 
And I suppose if you have something which you have an option which tells you, oh, it's because you're sleeping bad, or you have something which says like your glucose levels are messed up, you've got to sort that out. Then yeah. at least you have the power to do something rather than just feeling helpless. Absolutely. So, so yeah, it's it's definitely a, a good thing, I'd say. Uh, yeah, my last question to you that I'd I'd love to ask is, uh, you work for Hyperloop and SpaceX. What was that like? And did you ever mm. meet Elon? <laughs> yeah, um, great question. I so. I, I did meet Elon several times. I, I actually had a standing meeting with him for every Monday for a few a few months when uh, when things were very intense on one of the programs I was on, and uh, yeah, so I, I got I got to let's see, starting from the beginning, um, yeah. SpaceX for sure is in in my opinion one of the most inspirational places on the planet to work. Like for someone like me who who likes to build things, there are very few places I'm aware of where you can have more responsibility and more accountability for. The projects that you work on than there and and also to just be able to partake in this grand vision of bringing civilization to another planet and spreading out into the stars it's really very inspirational so you know as a kid I, i've always loved space and flying machines um, in college i took a bunch of courses in flight dynamics and aero so i kind of always assumed that space was out of reach like i wasn't an exceptional student or anything but um i worked a lot on dirt bikes and four wheelers and then cars and motorcycles and in my teenage years and stuff. So actually it turns out that when SpaceX was starting, they didn't really have the attention of like the best aerospace schools and of all of these NASA focused experts, you know, anyone who wanted to go work in space was focused on getting into the NASA programs or working, you know, at the existing contracting companies that were building state-of-the-art technology. So I kind of got lucky in the sense that even though I didn't have the most impressive resume, I knew how to build stuff and SpaceX was trying to get their hands on people who could just uh, yeah, turn wrenches and get rockets built. So I, I showed up in 2010. I got to spend six years doing everything from working on parachutes and cargo attachments for the International Space Station to carbon fiber aerostructures. And then finally, I got to lead the pressurized life support systems team for the Crew Dragon program. And uh, it was, yeah, it was a really transformational experience. I, I look back at it as hopefully not <laughs> the pinnacle of my career, but certainly uh, it was it was 20 years of experience in six years and some of the best and brightest minds I've ever met, you know, are still, I get to call my, my friends from that experience. And then the Hyperloop question. So once I was sort of getting towards the end of the, the life support systems uh, program that I was working on, you know, I was very interested in this new concept of high-speed transportation that, that Elon had put out there with the Hyperloop white paper. And a few of my SpaceX colleagues had actually gone on to, to start the company Hyperloop One. And what, what Hyperloop is, for people who don't know, it's, a, it's basically a spacecraft in a tube. So if you take a long tunnel or tube, metal tube, and pull all the air out of it, it's a vacuum, just like space, and then you put a high-speed hovering train inside of it and shoot it down the tube, and you can go very fast, but effectively that is a spacecraft because it, uh, there's no air outside of it, and it has to be pressurized, it has to have life support systems on board. So it was all of, uh, you know, all the things that I had good experience dealing with uh, except on the ground and it felt it felt super tangible and i personally am just fascinated by the earliest phases of developing transformative technology i, I think that that's you know there's this super high rate of change and you you can see things like it's it's a very profound experience to be a part of it and see how fast things change and improve and so i was i was super excited to get a part in this early development and i was at hyperloop doing the infrastructure level stuff, conceptual development, and also developing the life support concepts for the, for the pod or the vehicle inside it, um, which was great. And that was prior to starting, starting levels, which is what I'm obviously now doing. 
That's awesome. I got to say, out of everything, Hyperloop, I'm really looking forward to because just the change that we'll have in, in travel mm -hmm. is going to be incredible. And I like to travel. So just the ability <laughs> of <laughs> traveling that much faster, mm -hmm. it, that's very, yeah, it's enticing. It's good. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to follow uh, their progress, obviously. And of course, the Boring Company, which is now Elon's, uh, Elon's effort sort of in a similar vein, starting off without evacuating the tunnels and just mm. doing uh, just high-speed underground transportation. But it's interesting to consider the two different options. Hyperloop is building above ground, Boring Company below ground, and uh, they have different challenges for sure, but it's great to have the sort of the competition in the space, you know, it's, it's all good stuff. I, I, I certainly can't wait to take my first ride on one. Exciting times we live in and yeah. uh, some exciting times ahead, uh, minus the whole virus, even with all right. that. <laughs> yeah. Josh, if people want to keep in contact with you, do you have any social media or do you have a website or is there any way people can um, reach out? Yeah, absolutely. So the website is levelshealth.com. I highly recommend levelshealth.com forward slash blog, where you can read a lot of the research that we've been publishing. We're on Twitter at Levels Health and Instagram at Unlock Levels. And uh, yeah, I, I really encourage everyone to get engaged and reach out to us. We love answering questions about this space and, and delivering content that helps people understand, you know, the, the rationale for caring about metabolic function. So to us, it's the platform upon which health is built. So you have to have a, a robust metabolism in order to, to find real health. And we're very excited to help people achieve that. Awesome. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. And uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing what Levels does in the future. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on, Samuel. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Publicize. If you want to find out more about their PR packages, the free resources they have available, or receive a free PR assessment, you can visit their website. And for a limited time only, Brains Bite Back listeners will receive one month free with a 12-month package at publicize.co slash BBB. Good news. According to Verdict, hackers are going after health organizations across the world. As they state in the article, even attacking the central nervous system of the planet's coronavirus response, the World Health Organization. Cybercriminals show no ethical boundaries and will continue to attack wherever there could be a vulnerability, says Jake Moore, cybersecurity specialist at Slovak internet security firm ESET. As a result, Lisa Forte, partner at Red Goat Cybersecurity, alongside Pwn Defense's Daniel Card, and Radslaw Nat, information security expert at pharmaceutical firm GSK, set up the Cyber Volunteers 19 group to provide cybersecurity assistance to healthcare agencies. We decided then and there that something had to be done, however small, to help healthcare providers defend against attacks so they can focus on making people well again, says Forte. She adds that the direction of the group's support is led by the healthcare providers and charities and sees more than 3,000 volunteers contribute to regular threat briefings, advice on best practices, and business continuity assistance. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you learned something. If you're interested in learning more and listening to more of our podcasts, then you can do so by going to sociable.co, and you'll also find articles that we produce as well. Alternatively, you can follow us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts, you will find us there. Until next time, stay healthy and take care.